Hello, and welcome to Moving Markets by Julius Baer. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Good morning. My name is Mike Rauber. I'm an investment writer at Julius Baer in Zurich, and I will start by giving you an overview of what has happened in the markets. The big event today will be Fed Chair Jerome Powell's speech at the Jackson Hole Conference at 10 a.m. Washington time. Investors will be listening closely for any clues about how the U.S. Central Bank is thinking about inflation and the pace of interest rate increases ahead. How the speech is viewed is likely to impact market action not only today, but also in the weeks ahead. Prior to the speech, investors will already get a fresh look at the Fed's favorite inflation indicator, with today's July PCE inflation data release. The core deflator is seen rising 0.2% on the month, slowing from June's 0.6% gain. U.S. personal income, spending, and U.S. Michigan sentiment figures on inflation will be also out later today. On interest rates yesterday already, Fed member Esther George said that the Fed fund rate will have to be taken above 4% for a time, while James Bullard said that the rate should rise to a range of 3.75 to 4% by year-end. The latter is about a, about a quarter point above of what the market is pricing in. Overall, this was viewed as them setting more of a hawkish tone prior to Powell's speech. But interestingly, New Zealand's Federal Reserve Governor, Governor Adrian Orr said overnight in a Bloomberg interview that its central bank may be nearing the end of its aggressive tightening cycle, pointing to emerging signs that consume, consumption is beginning to cool. In U.S. market action yesterday, equities moved up strongly for the second day in a row, with the S&P 500 gaining 1.4%. All sectors rose on the day, although trading volume was well below average as investors are awaiting Powell's speech. European equities were only slightly up yesterday, with the Swiss SMI in the lead, rising 0.46%. The big news out of Europe continues to be power prices reaching new records. French power prices rose yesterday again and are now 10 times the price of last year. This follows Electricité de France's announcement yesterday that it will take longer for some of its reactors to come back online after halts. It is estimated around 14% of France's total nuclear capacity is impacted by this delay. And in the UK, industry regulator Ofgem tripled its cap for domestic energy bills to £3,500. Coming to oil, Brent is again above $100 a barrel. After Saudi Arabia said that oil supply curbs may be needed to stabilize global oil markets, major other OPEC plus countries provided support for this view. In Asia, the Hang Seng is up 0.45% for the second day of gains. It is benefiting from apparent progress on averting the delisting of Chinese shares in the US over an audit dispute. A new plan under discussion would let American inspectors travel to Hong Kong to review Chinese business audits documents. Japan released its August inflation figure overnight, and it showed a rise of 2.9% on the year, which was a little higher than expected. Gold is at 1,754 US dollars, and Bitcoin over $21,000 this morning. But it will be interesting to see how the latter will react to Powell's speech, given its inherent volatility. 
And just released a few minutes ago, German confidence figures came in at a weaker than expected minus 36.5. And lastly, European equity futures are pointing towards a higher open. And so that is from me. And now I'm pleased to hand over to Tim Gaggi, head of FX and PM Solutions Geneva and from our markets desk, with the latest on currency and commodities. Over to you, Tim. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. This was the week when we finally properly broke below parity in Eurodollar. We have spent almost the entire week below that level, with one or two little hops back up above it, and a close tonight below this psychologically critical number could be a bad sign. The macro picture is still very gloomy, with the energy outlook in Europe and the UK extremely worrying indeed. The US are more energy independent, of course, one of many reasons the dollar has so much demand, regardless of some shaky US data this week. Joe Biden's decision to cancel a load of student loan debt is, however, quite an inflationary move. I do understand that not all of the $3.3 billion will be spent on avocados on toast and Teslas, but still, it is going to circulate. I am also not entirely sure where he found all that spare change. I might rummage around in my own sofas this evening, although I guess the ones in the White House are bigger. Lots of negative news out of the UK, and I have heard a lot of bearish sentiment towards the pound, which makes sense, in fairness. Euro sterling, however, is completely unmoved as the energy crisis is engulfing both regions. Despite all this, I still believe that the pound is too cheap down here against the dollar. I may have a slightly biased view, I have had that accusation before, but if you can buy a few quid below 120, I strongly feel that at some stage in the future, that will look like a really good deal. I lean towards reverse convertibles and accumulators as usual. Direct purchases are so tricky in terms of timing. But for dollar longs, even buying sterling outright looks like it probably would make sense. We also had a lot of questions this week on the Israeli shekel, not a currency I usually spend a lot of time talking about. Month to date, it is up 4% against the dollar and almost 7% against the euro and the pound. Mind you, the ruble has gained another 3% against the dollar in August. But setting that to one side, the shekel is this month's top performing currency. Israel is essentially energy independent with their own natural gas resources, which is something I actually only really picked up on this week. So with natural gas just flying, I would rather expect the shekel to continue to hold its value. Metals are actually up a bit this week, although it doesn't feel like it. I still see platinum below 900 as a great opportunity for a reverse convertible, sell a put or an accumulator, some way of building a position via a derivative, but metals-wise I would steer clear of the rest. Some US data later, but as usual I am not sure there will be any significant impact even if the numbers are negative, and ultimately we are all just waiting to hear what Powell says at Jackson Hole, maybe he will help us out. Thanks for listening. I wish you an excellent weekend and hand back to Mike. Thank you very much, Tim. And we are pleased to have Sipo Arnsen from Next Generation Research this morning with us to provide us with his update on digital assets. Over to you, Sipo. Thank you, Mike, and good morning. Um, just a quick update from my side on a topic that investors in digital assets have been anticipating for some time now, which is the merge of the Ethereum network. Now, you know, I've talked about the merge extensively on this platform, so I won't go into the details and repeat myself too much. But the really sort of long story short here is that, you know, the merge will see the blockchain transitioning from, you know, the energy intensive proof of work consensus mechanism to a proof of stake consensus mechanism, which is significantly less um, energy intensive. Now, while there was somewhat of a consensus that, you know, had emerged in the crypto community that this would take place somewhere in mid-September, you know, until Wednesday, no official launch rate had been communicated by the Ethereum Foundation, which, you know, for context is the nonprofit organization that is responsible for overseeing 
the development of the network and the um, rollout of any technological upgrades. Now, you know, on Wednesday, the foundation announced that the first step of the merge will be initiated on the 6th of September, after which, you know, the difficulty of mining on the current proof of work blockchain will reach a point essentially that mining will not be possible anymore which will trigger the merge to the proof of stake blockchain somewhere between the 10th and the 20th of September. Now, you know, with these official dates and the market not speculating anymore on when exactly that's going to take place, you know, we think this greater clarity on the official timelines of the transition um, also has kind of incentivized the foundation to simultaneously step up their efforts um, to shore up its defenses and protect the network from you know, the ever-growing risk of hackers target, targeting digital asset networks. Now, we've seen multiple examples of exploits and hacks in recent weeks and months. Um, and, you know, something that blockchain networks tend to do is have something called a bug bounty program. Now, what is a bug bounty program? Essentially, this is just a incentive um, that is sort of put forward by the development team of a blockchain network, which seeks to pay rewards to, you know, so-called friendly hackers who identify vulnerabilities in the code and report these to the, you know, in this case, the Ethereum Foundation, um, you know, and then getting a payout based on what level of sort of bug was found in the system. Now, in the past, you know, that has been somewhere in the region of $250,000 for significant bugs being um, discovered. Now, we've seen recently that the Ethereum Foundation um, more than quadrupled their bug bounty rewards of having rewards of up to $1 million US dollars, which, you know, incentivizes participants to report rather than exploit any vulnerabilities on the network. Now, you know, while the merge has certainly been a key driving force behind the sort of recent rebound in Ethereum's um, outperformance. We think that persisting headwinds from monetary policy tightening and growing recession risks have actually provided really strong resistance for the recent recovery. Now, you know, the recent performance of the asset class, you know, in terms of having a recovery that was somewhat stalled by macro factor headwinds reinforces our view that, you know, top down macro factors really remain in the driving seat much more than offsetting any bottom-up crypto-specific developments like the merge. So, you know, how do we interpret this? We think that macro is still very much in the lead in driving the asset class performance. But at the same time, we think that, you know, crypto-specific events, once the macro environment sort of clears up, will start to have a much more stronger component of driving crypto prices. That's all from my side. Back to you, Mike. Thank you very much, Sipo. This concludes today's podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope that you'll join us again. Goodbye for now. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliasbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further other important legal information.